Today on Blue 58, the Packers unlocked a new weapon in rookie running back A.J. Dillon. How much can he contribute down the stretch? We'll discuss. But first, let's dive back into last weekend's win over the Tennessee Titans and take a second look at the defense. Blue 58! Hello and welcome to another episode of Blue 58, the one and only podcast to thepowersweep.com. I'm your host, John Meerdink. Happy to be with you here for another episode. As you know, our fundraiser for the Adrian Amos I'm Still Here Foundation is winding down. You've got two more days to donate if you want to be included in our jersey drawing. But it's been a wild success so far. And before we get too far into the podcast, I wanted to take a second and welcome in a special guest, my wife Liz, appearing for the first time on the podcast. Uh, she just wanted to take a second and say thank you to everybody who's donated so far. So, Liz. Hi, everybody. Just wanted to take a second and say thank you for your very generous support of the fundraiser John's doing through Blue 58. It means a lot to me personally that you've been willing to support this cause. As John has mentioned before, my grandmother passed away seven years ago from Alzheimer's after a nine-year battle with the disease. And I'm so grateful that so many of you have chosen to participate in the fundraiser. Anything we can do to help people affected by this disease is amazing, and I'm excited about what you've accomplished over the past couple of weeks. Thank you so much, and have a happy new year. A happy new year indeed. Thanks to Liz for stopping by there for a second. Again, if you feel led, go ahead and donate. I, I don't want to make make it seem like I'm putting pressure on anybody, because I'm not. I, if you don't feel led to donate, don't. But we've we've done a great job so far. I say we. You guys have done a, a great job so far. I am impressed beyond my wildest dreams with how this has gone. I have not caught up on all the thank you notes yet to people who have sent me stuff, uh, but I have tracked all the donations and we are up to date. So December 31, the deadline, we are well over $1,700 collected so far. We got a really nice shout out from the Arm Still Here Foundation newsletter for this month. Thank you to everybody who is supporting this. I'm very excited to pick a winner here, and it's going to be someone very deserving because everybody who has donated so far is. All right, let's talk some football here for a second. Well, for the remainder of the podcast, in fact. Listener Sean wrote in after the Packers beat up on the Titans over the weekend. Regarding the win, you usually rail a lot about the Packers' defense always rushing four and dropping seven, but they mixed it up against the Titans with many different blitz combos that really kept the Titans off balance with hurries, sacks, etc. It was nice to see. And I wanted to take a second. We're not out of the email now. Thank you to Sean for writing in. But I wanted to take a second and give a shout-out, actually, for whatever that's worth, to the defense for that. Uh, we touched on it a little bit in the post-game podcast, but I thought it was worth circling back to to just talk about this point. I think it's a great point to take note of that the Packers weren't so much in their rush four, drop seven scheme. If there's been a one main criticism I think I've had about uh, Mike Pettin over the last year and a half, well, almost two years now, it's that the pass rush has been so conservative. He's relying so heavily on the Packers pass rushers getting home that I think it's hurt the defense overall. And I thought the game plan against the Titans was so good, so creative. And those blitzes, those creative pressures were a part of it, a big part of it. I don't think we've seen this many corner blitzes or safety blitzes or just different people coming from different directions from Patton since early in 2018. One that really came to mind, thinking back on this, was an ever-so-slightly-delayed blitz by Darnell Savage in the first half. 
He rolled down into the box and waited just half a heartbeat after the snap of the football for a seam to open up. Then away he goes with that 4-3 speed, and he gets through, doesn't get a sack, but he forces an incompletion. Just absolutely gorgeous. And I hope we see more of Mike Pettin doing that kind of thing. Because I think it's a it's a big, screamingly obvious way to take advantage more of the, the individual gifts that his players have. We've used the, the phrase on this podcast numerous times over the course of the year, maybe even dating back to last year, that the Packers' defense has seemed less than the sum of its parts. And I think that's because Pettin has not always done a good job of maximizing the skills that people have or just their physical abilities. We've seen him use Darnell Savage a little bit more creatively over the second half of the season, to great effect, I might add. Savage had another great game on Sunday, and he continues to have an impact on opposing offenses whenever he's on the field. Getting creative and doing more than just having seven people drop back into coverage, usually fairly deep zone coverage, while hoping your front four gets to the quarterback is a way to maximize those gifts. And I think we might see more out of other players on the defense if Petten can continue to do that. Staying with the defense for the second, got a good question I thought was was talking about because of what it says about the defense as a whole from Kevin on YouTube. Kevin has asked a few questions over the, the season so far, and I wanted to give him a shout-out uh, for asking another good one here. He admits right off the bat that this is a little bit of a, a potentially dead horse, but I think there's a creative way to look at it. Kevin says, I wondered your thoughts on this dead horse topic, but at a new angle. Blake Martinez made some comments about the Packers' defense and how he was used. Looking back, I realized he was not half bad against the run. Not great, but not awful. But his performance was in free fall under our current defensive coordinator. Now his performance is back up again. Maybe it's as simple as Pettin really does entirely ignore the run and doesn't just or doesn't say, we'll focus on the pass, but at least be mindful of the run. So again, thanks to Kevin for writing in there. I think I do have some thoughts on this. I don't want to talk so much about Blake Martinez in particular, because I think my thoughts are pretty well established there. To recap briefly, solid player doesn't necessarily elevate the defense, doesn't make it worse, though. So let's talk about linebackers in general for a second instead. First, I think if you don't have an elite linebacker, like top five to seven at the position in the league, trying to find a bunch of pretty good ones is the way to go. Because if you're not having a guy who can really elevate the position, I think you're better off spending your resources on defense elsewhere rather than trying to dump a bunch of resources into getting that super elite guy. Because I feel like the difference between an an A-graded linebacker in a B-graded linebacker, is vastly different than the grade between B and C. The difference between a guy who's just average, like a C, and a guy who's between average and elite is not as much as a guy who's elite is from just being good. I phrase that just brutally, but I think you understand what I mean. A guy who is actively making your defense better as a linebacker is so much better than a guy who's just slightly better than average. And right now it feels like the guy, the Packers have a bunch of guys that aren't elite, but they're somewhere between B and C. Somewhere on the spectrum of pretty good. Not elite, but not terrible. 
Kamal Martin, Chris Barnes, Christian Kirksey, Ty Summers, Oren Burks. Not all of those guys are great. Not all of those guys are even consistently pretty good. But they're rarely just awful. And I think on a given Sunday, you can turn to any two of them and scratch out a pretty good performance. Secondly, if you've got a bunch of linebackers that are just pretty good, I think doing what Petten does with his linebackers actually makes it makes a lot of sense. So what does he ask him to do? Well, to hear Blake Martinez tell it, it's a lot of cleanup work. And if you go back and look at the comments he made over the summer, he talked about how he didn't like being used in that role. He wanted to go out and make plays, try to get to the ball, blah, 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 all those things. I wonder if that was ever really his game, uh, but I can see how that would be frustrating. Basically, what Petten has asked his guys to do at inside linebacker over the past couple of years has been let Kenny Clark, Zedarius Smith, and everybody up front make the plays in the run game, then clean up behind them. Make those plays that are four or five yards downfield. Just don't let it go any farther than that. But beyond that, Petten also wants guys who can cover in the passing game. It's why he likes playing safeties at linebacker in their nickel and dime packages. I think if you've got a bunch of guys who are just pretty good, if you don't have a super elite guy, you might as well just do those things. Just ask them to do simple stuff. And then play the ones who you think can match up with opposing offense as well. And I think over the past couple of weeks, we've seen that play out at linebacker. This past Sunday, Adrian Amos was playing linebacker quite a bit, and it worked pretty well. But Chris Barnes and Kamal Martin have done a good job at times this year. Ty Summers has been limited, but at times has been okay. And Christian Kirksey seems to be coming on a little bit down the stretch here. So back to Blake Martinez just for a second. Was he elite as a linebacker? I don't think so. No, not really. Um, He wasn't an elite athlete. He wasn't a guy who made the Packers defense notably better by being on the field. So if he's not an elite player, if he's not a game changer at linebacker, linebacker, that's a weird emphasis, you're just going to end up having, uh, end up having him do what Petten did anyway. You're not going to be putting him in position to make elite level plays if you're not an elite level player. I give some respect to Blake Martinez for believing that he is an elite level player. But I think the balance of his time in Green Bay would show that he's not. So maybe Petten is right. And maybe that means there still is hope for the Packers defense at that position. If he can continue to use his players a little bit better, put them in position to do what they do well, maybe you can still scratch out some good performances this week, this year, this season from the inside linebacker spot. Let's talk about A.J. Dillon. Had a great game on Sunday, and I saw a lot of stuff going around after the game as to whether or not A.J. Dillon is the new James Starks. Former Packers wide receiver James Jones was even saying that, saying this reminds me of what James Starks did for the Packers during their Super Bowl run, during our Super Bowl run in 2010. What exactly did Starks do, by the way? To recap, Starks was on the pup list, physically unable to perform list for most of his rookie season after being uh, hurt his last season at Buffalo. When he was finally activated, he was out of shape, and he got in trouble with Mike McCarthy for that. But come playoff time, he was great. In the wild card round against the Eagles, he had 23 carries for 123 yards. In the divisional round against the Falcons, he had 25 carries for 66 yards. 
in the NFC Championship game, 74 yards on 22 carries and a touchdown. And in the Super Bowl, 11 carries for 52 yards. Basically, a workhorse for the Packers in a season when they had a lot of uncertainty at running back. So is A.J. Dillon going to be that kind of player for the Packers this year? In short, no. But he might actually be something better because the Packers don't need him to be what James Starks was in 2010. Starks was a workhorse. In the playoffs that season, he had 81 carries over four games. And the Packers absolutely do not need a workhorse back right now. But what they can use, what they can always use, what every playoff team can use at this point of the season is more weapons. If you look at an NFL season as a war of attrition, this year more than ever, any team that can add something extra late in the season is going to have maybe not an advantage, but a better shot at playing to their potential in the playoffs. And I think a better way to think of A.J. Dillon, if we're thinking about weapons, is as like an Andre Risen type. I am as skeptical of the Andre Risen love as anybody. I've pointed this out several times, and I've gotten weird backlash over it by pointing out that statistically, Andre Risen really didn't do that much for the Packers in the eight games, including the playoffs that he was with them. Everybody remembers the big catch in the Super Bowl for good reason, but statistically, he didn't do all that much for the Packers. But what he did do was make people pay when he was given an opportunity. And that was something that Terry Mickens, Don Beebe, other receivers the Packers had on the on the roster couldn't do as consistently or weren't doing as consistently when he came aboard. And he showed that given a chance, he could make plays, and he did in the Super Bowl, a really big one. Right now, the Packers really only have one workhorse-type player on offense, and that's Devontae Adams. They don't need another guy to take up a huge number of snaps to get the ball a whole bunch of times. But A.J. Dillon showed that he can make people pay if they don't take him seriously. And if he can make people pay on a few rushing attempts a game in the playoffs with the threat of breaking off a 30-yarder for a touchdown like he did on that fourth down play, I think that's enough. They don't need him to be a guy who carries 20 to 25 times a game. The Packers really didn't even need James Starks to do that. A couple of those games where he's getting a lot of carries, the Atlanta game in particular, they're trying to run clock in the second half. That's not who the Packers will ever need A.J. Dillon to be. But he showed Sunday that he can make plays given the opportunity. And the playoffs is never a bad time to have more playmakers. Rudy, the good question asker, writes in with an interesting thought that I think we should pull on a little bit. He writes, has anyone ever done analysis of the correlation or causation of the success of an NFL franchise and the leadership spine of owners, presidents, GMs, coach, quarterbacks, and so on? For example, going into the Bears game this weekend, I love seeing the litany of horrible quarterbacks versus Favre and Rodgers. The Bears' leadership culture has always figured out a way to produce a good defense. The Packers' leadership culture has figured out the quarterback position. I also enjoy thinking about the Roonies in Pittsburgh and having like three coaches since the late 60s. I wonder if there's ever been any analysis around Green Bay's unique leadership position, no one owner, which can't allow for the longer view to be taken. Maybe we should all give Mark Murphy more credit than he gets. 
maybe I was wrong about Green Bay taking Jordan Love. Maybe the Packer way is generational investment in quarterbacks before the team needs them, which allows the Packers to always be in contention, end quote. So a lot to unpack here. First off, I think the jury is still way out on Jordan Love. So even if you want to give credit to Mark Murphy, Brian Gutekunst, Matt LaFleur, everybody, I think it's still okay to have misgivings there. I'm right there with you. I used the word indefensible at the time in April, and I still think that's largely true. I think with this team being where it was in its life cycle, unless you really think that Jordan Love is the future at the position, and that future is pretty soon, it was pretty much an indefensible pick. Unless he turns out to be that next guy. I'm right there with you. I I still feel that way. But that's not what this is about. The question is whether or not what the Packers are doing at a leadership level puts them in a unique position. Did some digging on this today. And I think we're going to have a hard time saying that stability itself breeds any kind of success. However, there is some sort of interesting situation, at least ownership-wise, with teams that have tended to make the Super Bowl. Going back over the last 30 years, there have been 60 available slots in the Super Bowl to a season for 30 years. 40 of those slots have been taken up by 12 teams. So that's 12 teams making multiple appearances. Nine teams have made at least three. The Patriots, the Steelers, the Packers, Giants, Cowboys, Broncos, 49ers, Rams, and Seahawks. Props to the NFC West, I guess. But among those teams, there are some interesting common features. All of those teams have basically generational stability at their ownership level. Since 1990, only the Patriots have had more than two owners. And really, they've only turned over once in a meaningful sense. There was a couple weird ownership things that happened with the Patriots in the early 90s, but since 1994, they've had Robert Kraft and Robert Kraft only. The Steelers have had one family own the team since then. The Giants have had two, the Maras and the Tishes, but they've been the same since 1991, the same owners. The Cowboys have only had Jerry Jones. The Broncos have only been owned by the Bolin family. The 49ers have had two different owners, the DiBartolo and York families. The Rams have had three-ish owners, depending how you count, mainly two. And the Seahawks have had essentially two owners, one ownership change. So very little ownership turnover at the very top level. Compare that to the Packers, who have essentially had two quasi-owners. If you look at Mark Murphy as the de facto owner of the Packers, he's the guy who's voting for the Packers at ownership meetings at the league level. There's only been two of him, Bob Harlan and Mark Murphy. So at least at that level, there is a lot of stability. I also looked at how often coaches have turned over in that same span. And of these nine teams that have made three or more Super Bowl appearances, no one has had more than nine head coaches 
The Rams and the 49ers have each had nine, and that's not counting interim coaches. The Steelers are at the low end with three. The Patriots have had four. The Packers kind of fall in the middle with six. But they've also only had three since 2000. So over 20 years now, only three head coaches. Sherman, McCarthy, and Lafleur. They aren't turning things over a lot. Contrast that to teams like perennial bottom, bottom feeders, the Raiders, the Browns, the Jaguars, the Washington football team. Other than the Jaguars, who somehow, paradoxically, have had only five head coaches, you see a lot of turnover there. The Raiders have had 14 head coaches, including Art Shell twice. The Browns have had 13, and they were out of the league for a couple of years. Washington has had 10 head coaches since 1990. That's a lot of turnover. To get back to Rudy's question, I don't know if that's because of stability at the top, ownership, and their ability to take a longer view, or if it's success leading to stability. But I think the takeaway here is that stability is goes hand-in-hand hand with success, and stability might be just as important as success. I think the Steelers are kind of the arch example here. They've transitioned from Bill Cowher to Mike Tomlin, and they've stuck with Tomlin despite some up-and-down years. It hasn't always been Super Bowl-level stuff with Tomlin, though he did win with the one Super Bowl and had a chance to win another, except for the Packers getting in the way. They've stuck with Tomlin, and they've, I think, reaped the rewards of that. You know what you're always going to get from the Steelers, and I think that says a lot. We could also look at quarterbacks, too, and just quick and dirty, the Steelers are also up there with that. They've had essentially one starting quarterback for 15 years plus now. The Patriots were right up there, too, going on 20 years with Tom Brady. The Packers essentially have had two since 1992. And even the Giants, for most of the 21st century, have basically had one quarterback. Finding your leadership core and sticking with it, I think, is what gets you success in the NFL. And I think, as much as people didn't like Mike McCarthy there towards the end, the stability did help even out a couple rough spots. 2012-2013, if you look back at how those Packers teams played, I think they actually played better than their roster. 2012 comes to mind in particular. That was not a particularly strong roster. They had a lot of injuries that year. But Mike McCarthy at that point, in year, what was that? He came on in 2006, so he's in year 6-7, something like that. He's got the program there. And the Packers, despite not being perfect, rode out a lot of bumps that year. Stuff like that doesn't generate a lot of headlines. It's a results-based business, and I get that. But... I think one of the ways that you get results is with a little bit of stability. What's, we, what's that we always say when guys get, we talk about guys getting fired? Remember that the alternative could get worse. That was something that was concerning with a guy like Dom Capers getting fired. He put together some good defenses in Green Bay. People don't like to hear that. There were some really legitimately good defenses in Green Bay. Look back at their stats in 2015. That was a Super Bowl caliber defense. They kind of wasted it on offense that year. 
The alternative could have been a guy like, I don't know, pull a name out of a hat, who's a, a defensive coordinator who everybody was excited about but is burned out. There's tons of them league-wide. Everybody's excited about getting the new defensive mind. Maybe not so much anymore. It's all offense now. But every year there is hope somewhere in the league about a new defensive coordinator fixing somebody's problems. Stability might be a little bit better. It's I don't know if we're ever going to get a, a definitive answer as to whether success breeds stability or stability breeds success. But I think it's something worth considering as you make changes, as we observe changes, and we're coming into the time of the season when changes are going to be happening for franchises. Keep in mind that making a change is not always positive, and change for change's own sake might not get you the result you want. That's all I've got for you on this episode. Do appreciate you listening in. I'm sorry if this episode sounded a little bit rough (laughs) editing-wise. We had a couple child-related interruptions in this one. Uh, The boy is not going through a bit of a, a rough sleep cycle right now. So we are we are navigating that. So appreciate your patience there. Continue to donate to our fundraiser. You only have a couple days left. And I appreciate everybody who's taken the time to donate there. If I haven't gotten to you specifically for a thank you note yet, uh, please be patient. That is coming. Um, and I am so grateful for everybody who's participated here. And I know the foundation is as well. So keep up the great work. As always, if this show was beneficial to you, if you enjoyed what you heard today, do me a favor and share it with somebody you think would enjoy it as well. It's going to help us continue to grow this conversation we're having around the Packers and ultimately help all of us become smarter Packers fans. Because as I always say, smarter Packers fans are better Packers fans and better Packers fans are what we all want to be. I'm your host, John Meerdink. We'll see you next time on Blue 58.